Today's passage we'll be hearing from is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there. If you do not have a Bible, there should be some under the seats in front of you. Uh, you can take that home with you as a gift, but we would love for you to have a copy of the Word in your hand. So we'll be teaching from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. So once you have arrived there, if you could, if you could stand to your feet. Hear the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or I see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in that same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. You guys are more chipper this morning. That feels good. I want to welcome you here. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And like Scott said, we're in a series called Unwavering Joy, a walk through the book of Philippians. So uh, we're at the back half of chapter one, and we are going to be talking about what I know you all woke up and rolled out of bed and wanted me to preach about, which is the topic of suffering. Uh, that is our topic, is joy and suffering this morning. So I'm going to hope to be as chipper as I can. The good news is it's joy and suffering, so I feel like I'm not even being disingenuous to try and be happy about it. But nonetheless, that's a topic that we are covering. Uh, we're going to tackle this issue because I think uh, the, the most prevalently mentioned enemy of our joy uh, for most of us is suffering. When you ask someone why they struggle with joy or why they are not joyful, or maybe you just say, why are you sad or why are you depressed or why are you discouraged, which would be the opposite of joy, right? Uh, most of the time, it is in relation to some sort of suffering that has happened to them, whether it be because, or it's in relation to their actions or their decisions or not. Nonetheless, suffering uh, is something that happens to all of us in one, one way, shape, or form, and then it impacts us, and it impacts us against our joy. Am I in like a tunnel? Does anybody else sound hear that a little bit? Help me out, guys. Don't make me sound like I'm in a culvert. All right. <laughs> And, and the Bible doesn't, isn't silent about this, right? Like the, the Bible actually talks about suffering at a number of different levels. Even from the very beginning, after sin enters the world, the very, the very next chapter talks about a, a, a couple of brothers who have a dispute and it ends in murder. That one brother murders his other brother and that the parents have to deal with uh, the fallout of this. It goes on, the Bible talks about things like infertility uh, at length, where... Uh, couples, particularly um, like Abraham and Sarah or uh, Samuel's mother or Leah in the story of Jacob, but long to have children and then they can't and they struggle with infertility uh, for long periods of time. It talks about suffering like wrongful imprisonment and family betrayal in the story of Joseph. The Bible talks about uh, suffering like slavery uh, in 
the book of Exodus when the children of Israel have been enslaved. Or like hunger, being hungry and not being able to, to purchase food or get food for yourself. The children of Israel when they're in the desert, uh, that happens to them. Uh, it talks about suffering as, as parents. If you're a parent in the room, you ever felt like you were suffering because of some hardship that your child is going through or just the disobedience of your kids? Uh, like, you know, Samuel has two sons, and although Samuel is a godly man who has tried to raise his children in, in a God-fearing manner and way, uh, his kids are just disobedient sinners, and he has to deal with that. You know, his, 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 his sons, they, all the children of Israel say, listen, Samuel, we love you, and we want you to continue to judge Israel. We just don't want your kids. That's hard, isn't it? Any parent ever picked their child up from, like, kindergarten or something, and they're like, like, how did my son do, or how did my daughter do? And they'll say, not good. Like, oh man, you know, that hurts. You know, that's, that stinks. And as parents, we're always want to defend, right? But deep down, we know they're little terrorists, and we're like, man, I'm raising this, you know? Then you start asking, like, what does that mean about me? Um, that's tough. Uh, the Bible deals with things like rejection and loss. Uh, in the story of David and, and Bathsheba uh, is a perfect example where uh, David feels that he's been rejected by God, and, and the child that is the result of his sin, it, it dies. Um, and it's difficult for, for David to walk through that. Also, David's story talks to us about betrayal. Um, not, just, uh, not just like Joseph with the family betrayal of his brothers, but this betrayal in the kingship. Uh, the story of David and Absalom is a story of David's own son trying to take over the throne from him. But it's not just his son that does it, but about half of Israel joins in. And David has to go and run and flee to the mountains after all of these years that he served Israel uh, he ends up being mistreated, and they're throwing rocks and cursing at him as he walks up to hide in the mountains. The Bible talks about that. Uh, the Bible then goes on in the back half of the Old Testament and talks about the prophets and how the prophets were persecuted just for telling the truth. Over and over again, these men would be given words from God, and then they'd be beaten or whipped. Or One guy's thrown in a well, down at the bottom of a well, and he has to stay there for days and days on end, just throwing food down to him periodically. Uh, the Bible does not dodge the issue of suffering. It talks a lot about it, actually. And then, of course, when you go into the New Testament, although Jesus brings this message of life and life in the kingdom and joy, what we know is that Jesus also experienced the height of all suffering, right? And Jesus knew this in his whole life. He's headed to the cross, and they keep talking to him about, we can't wait till you usher in the kingdom. And Jesus keeps saying, uh, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'll, I'll rise. But Jesus knows he's got to go through the cross before the kingdom gets ushered in. And then even once the kingdom is ushered in, we get to the book of Acts, right? And you think, okay, it's finally here. Things are great. It's going to be fine. And all the disciples, they just seem to go through difficult hardships. Um, church history tells us all the disciples, apart from Judas, who took his own life, all of the disciples end up dying martyrs' deaths. They die being persecuted for their faith. Um, the book of Acts is full of stories of God doing miraculous, awesome things, and then the people of God being chastised for them. At one point, even the disciples are brought into the courts, and they're beaten, they're, they are uh, beaten publicly, and then they're released, and they say, never preach in this name again, and the disciples leave doing what? Crying? No. Rejoicing that they got to suffer for the name. And so Paul doesn't dodge this, and I think he doesn't dodge this not only because he is experiencing great suffering, and not only because the Philippian church is experiencing great suffering, but that suffering is part of the human experience in a fallen world. And if we dodge this, it's totally dishonest to the faith to dodge this and say, if you follow God, this will never happen to you. That's just not true, guys. And as a pastor, I feel obligated to tell you 
following Jesus, not only is it not true that you never suffer, but that in some ways there will be more suffering that comes your way because of it. And I don't say that in, in order to um, put an obstacle in the way of your faith, but instead to be honest about what the Bible says. Because if, if we say, no, actually believing in Jesus means that he takes and alleviates all that suffering away, uh, then we're basically saying the exact opposite of what the Bible says. Which what Jesus says is that in this world you will have tribulation, and then there's a next, the next half of this verse is helpful, right? But take heart, for I've overcome the world. So he doesn't dodge. Jesus doesn't dodge. The writers of the New Testament and Old Testament don't dodge. They say we will suffer. And in fact, to follow Jesus means to embrace a life that might be even more full of suffering. However, that we'll have God in the midst of it. And that's the good news. And that as we have God, that we have all that we need. Okay, so we're going to dive in. And we're going to talk a little bit about suffering from the perspective of Paul. Paul here is, is uniquely talking about suffering because he's not talking about suffering in relation to what Paul has done wrong. How many of you have ever suffered for right reasons, right? Okay, I talked about me, me last week a little bit and my uh, traffic tickets that I never paid and finding myself in jail for a night. Uh, that's called suffering for stupid, right? That's, that's, all, that's on me. Um, and many of us, we suffer this way, right? Like we, we will suffer and go through hardships that are the consequences of very real actions and sin. Then there's some of us that are sitting here and very much like Paul, we have suffered not because of anything that we've done wrong at all, but simply because of the sin and brokenness of others. And therefore we've received suffering. And then Paul takes it to the next level, right? He actually is suffering because he did something right. So it wasn't that he did something wrong. It wasn't that he was morally neutral. It's that he preached the gospel and now he's suffering. And that's a tough place to be, isn't it? Where you feel like you've done the right thing, but you got the wrong result or the wrong reward for your right thing that you did. This may have happened to you at your job. Maybe you felt like I did the moral thing and then I'm the one who got fired for it. Or I stood up and decided that I wanted to stand for something right and I ended up experiencing great loss in my marriage for it. And Paul says that this was his experience in preaching the gospel. And yet there's a twist this morning to the text because God doesn't answer the question, how do we keep and preserve our joy in the midst of suffering? Because that probably is the question that you bring this morning with you. As soon as I say joy and suffering, you think I'm going to say, how do we preserve the joy that we have in the midst of the storm around us? That's not the question that God answers. Instead, God says, how do we change the way that we view suffering in order to leverage it as something that God designed to give us more and deeper joy. Let me say that again. It's not just preserving the joy that we have, but how do we see suffering how God sees it, which is he uses the word granted to us or gifted to us in order to increase our joy. That's different, right? To say we have to persevere through this and that Jesus will sustain us is different than saying that God gifts his children with suffering so that we would know him more and experience him more deeply. And it's the latter that Paul talks about here. So, Paul uses this term whenever he talks about this. He says that this way of living is a manner of life worthy of the gospel. That when we live like this, when we have these lenses on, when we view suffering this way, that that's the manner of life worthy of the gospel. So, let's walk through here and talk a little bit about that because much like last week, I feel like Paul's talking superhero language again, right? Remember we talked about that last week, like Paul seems a little superhero-ish here. He starts in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you, or come and see you, or I'm absent, that I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit. So he says, live your life in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Now if we pause there and we ask ourselves, 
what is the gospel not worthy of? To define that in the negative brings a little more light on the scripture. The answer is, the gospel's worthy of your whole life. To live a, to live a life that is in a manner worthy of the gospel would be to live a life of complete worship because Christ has given himself and there's no greater gift that could be given from the Father than the gift of his own perfect Holy Son and that this is the message that we hold in our hearts that Jesus gave himself for us and then rose and offered to us what we didn't deserve and he took on himself what we did deserve that then what do we say when when it's asked what does God deserve in light of that gospel message out of our lives? The answer is the gospel's worthy of everything. It demands my whole life. And God, here's the thing, and God's going to settle for nothing less than our whole lives. That's what he calls us to. Whole obedience and submission to the lordship of Jesus in every sense of the word. We talked about this a little bit in the summer. That's what a life living quorum Deo is, or before the face of God in worship. And Paul is calling the church at Philippi to live this kind of lifestyle um, no matter if he comes to see them or not. And don't you catching this parental language from Paul here? He says, listen, I'm, I plan on coming to you, but, but, but listen, live this way whether I come or not. This is where you look at your children and you say, integrity is when you live like mommy's watching even when mommy's not watching, right? You ever, you ever had this conversation with your children? Like, I want you to, uh, li- to be just like you are when, I'm, when you're in my presence, uh, when you go to school and you're just in your teacher's presence. This is a conversation I've had with my son recently. Is that he actually, he, he tests, as a toddler does, tests his boundaries depending upon who he's around. And so he'll go into the children's ministry and some of you guys watch him and you'll see him interact in a certain way that he does not play with mom like that. Because mom's a little bit of a tyrant, okay? And so she takes care of business when those kind of disobedient acts are done. Um, and Paul says this to the church at Philippi. He says, listen, I'm, I'm going to come to you, and, and, I, and I, right now I'm imprisoned. But I, you should want to do this anyway. This, this should be who you want to be anyway. And then he doesn't do what I think most of us want him to do, which is to, uh, he doesn't alleviate the, them with this call to uh, a worshipful lifestyle based on their suffering. So he doesn't say, listen, I know you guys are having a hard time, so don't really worry about the whole obedience thing. Just try to make it through. In my household... Um, I have a saying and my wife has a saying that we always make fun of each other for and they're indicative of our personalities uh, and they're like this, these, these phrases are the phrases that we say most often for my wife her phrase is well it's true that's her, that's her way of saying I can say whatever I want because <laughs> candor is a high value for her so she'll say something that, and she'll say it in such a way that's mean and I'm like babe you can't it's, well it's true that's her way of saying, that's it, you know, you need to accept it. It is what it is. And then mine, what she gets mad at me about is I'll come home and I'll do something or not do something most often. And she's like, babe, I need you to do this or whatever. And my saying is, cut me some slack right now. <laughs> that's my saying. Uh, and I tell her, that's called grace. Cut me some slack right now, okay? And really what I'm saying is, I've had a hard day, I've had a difficult day, I've had a long day, this has happened, I'm not feeling well. Whatever it may be that I, I have uh, identified as my suffering means that you need to give me some space. I deserve, whatever your expectations were on me need to be lowered now. <laughs> because of what's happened, right? The, the hardship or the suffering. Paul looks into the face of the Philippians and he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, hey, you guys are suffering, so really the bar's been lowered for you. He doesn't say that. And that's tough, right? 
That's tough because it seems to, it sounds a lot like Job's friends to an extent. Remember Job's story of Job? He, he goes through terrible suffering and his friends come around and they're like the worst friends. They like gather around him and they're like, Job, this is probably because of your hidden sin. God is so majestic. This is happening to you because you're just probably not righteous. And they just throw all this theology at him. And some of it's true. Some of it's just kind of like mixed up weird stuff. And they throw all this at him. And what they never do is say, I'm sorry, Job. They should never do that. Never give him grace. And I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. I don't think he's looking at the Philippian church and saying, I'm not going to give you any grace. I don't feel sorry for you at all. Just suck it up, buttercup. That's not what he's saying. We know that because of the way he started this chapter, right? He started by saying, I thank God for you every day in my prayers. You make my prayers with joy. And he goes on and he gives great encouragement. And then he follows up with, but let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He says, suffering should not and must not give us a cause for a manner of life that reflects anything less than the truth of the gospel. And here's the truth of the gospel. All suffering for the Christian is in the context of a greater story. And therefore, it's not just permissible by God, but it's something that we can take joy in because of what God has done. That's what Paul says. He says, listen, I'm not saying that this is easy. What I'm saying is we need to live our lives in such a way that we bring light to the truth of this situation, which means this isn't the whole story. Whatever's gone on in our lives, suffering, whether it be sickness or death, whether it be feeling like you're impoverished spiritually or physically, whether it be relational strain in your marriage, whatever it is that you right now feel you're suffering, right? Paul teaches us that's not the whole story of your life, and therefore you should not live like it's the whole story of your life. When we live like that's the whole story of our lives, we are denying the gospel that saved us. The gospel says that this is a part of a grander story where Christ will turn this for our good and his glory. And therefore, we can take joy in the fact that God doesn't only say, listen, I've permitted this suffering into your life and in the end I'll turn it for good. We could take joy in it because he says, I'm going to leverage this in such a way that you would know me more. And that's a promise for the Christian that is not a promise for everyone is that every bit of suffering for us, we can trust God has allowed it, permitted it, for the sake of us knowing him, taking joy in him, experiencing him. So how and what does this look like when Paul says for us to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? Well, what Paul does is he gives a command and then he gives illustration, right? He helps us. He gives us a picture of it. Parents, you do this with your children, right? Here's what you say. Go clean your room. Command. I want that bed made. I want those toys picked up. I want, you know, a litany, right? Depending upon your personality, there's longer lists, right? It just depends. But we all do this. We say, I, I want you to do this, and this is what I mean. Paul says, live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, and this is what I mean. So what does he say? Okay, he says this. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Let's break those down. I think they're very helpful. Number one, standing firm. Not swayed or rocked by the suffering that comes to your life. It is the easiest to doubt God and his goodness when you suffer. Amen? Isn't it easy to doubt the heart of God when the hand of God seems to be pressed against you? Paul knows this. As he's in prison, he knows this. And he says, stand firm when the storm comes. 
Jesus knew this too. He uses analogies of the storms to teach us that it's, everything is fine and seems fine until there's opposition to our lives. It is much easier when you just got a raise, just got a bonus, just, you know, your marriage is really flourishing and your kids are getting A's to say God is good. It's harder to say that when you're dealing with senseless tragedy, isn't it? It's harder to say God is good because it's, it seems so counterintuitive. If God loves me and he is good, why would he allow this? And then if we know that God, if we believe in God's omnipotence, then we say, God could have done anything to prevent this, and he chose not to. And Paul says, when the suffering comes, stand firm. Number two, he says, stand firm in one spirit. Well, what spirit is that? Here's what I promise you, friends. This is not just a general spirit. This is not good vibes, new age spirit, Okay. This is the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. In one spirit. Remember, he's not talking to us individually. He's talking to us as a body. He's talking to us as a church. And he says, we stand firm together by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is he saying we should not do by saying what we should do? By saying we should rely on the strength of the Holy Spirit, he's saying also, without saying it, you should not rely on your own strength in these times. You should not lean into your own strength when you are suffering. You should not try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and just continue on. And we all have sayings, right, that we, we don't know we're doing it, but we're doing it. Here's my, one of my favorite sayings when things are tough. It is what it is. If you ever hear me say that, that's me not knowing I'm doing it, but that's me rationalizing a terrible situation and saying, I'll get through it. And if I'm not careful, that takes a turn, right? And I'll say, I'll get through it on my own strength. It is what it is. You guys probably all have sayings on how you rationalize tough and terrible situations in your home. Your kids have probably picked them up. <laughs> and if we're not careful, they become these mantras that we use to convince us that we got this and we'll figure it out. Paul says, no, stand firm in one spirit, the Holy Spirit. And in one mind, he says. How do we stand firm together in one mind in suffering? Well, here's what I can promise you. Right now, and there's, there's only a, you know, not tons of us in this room, I could promise you there's at least 20 different opinions on the same subject in this room alone. And that's okay. In fact, I don't think the unity is uniformity, and so I'm not saying that's a bad thing. What the church uniquely offers is that we don't have to, we don't have to submit to everyone's best guess. Like when we get together and we decide how we move forward as the church of the living God, it's not based on whoever's most winsome, whoever's most powerful, whoever has the, the most entertaining or the most compelling argument. It's good news, isn't it? Because some of us, you, more, you introverts in the room, you're like, I would always lose. No, instead we have the word of God. Therefore, we can be in one mind because what we do is we don't base we don't base our lives and suffering on the world's best advice. We base our lives and suffering on God's word. That's how we can be of one mind. Right? Okay. Next, he says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I think there's three elements there. Number one is striving. And I want to be clear here because I think, especially in our culture, when I say striving, an American thinks, yes. Like, it just, it is who we are. It is ingrained in us. We think striving, we think American dream, we think I will get out of this. No matter the hardship, we are pioneers. We go and we, we take what is wild and we tame it for ourselves, right? And so when I say striving, it speaks to you at a visceral level. And I want to tell you that part of that is, is something that can be redeemed. Because sloth is something to be rejected. 
However, I think a part of that also can lead you to real hardship in the midst of your hardship. What Paul says here is don't be inactive, but don't be hasty. So when you say strive, what do you mean? Striving can mean diligently pursuing God, diligently looking to hear his voice. It can also mean sitting quietly before God. And, and like Psalm 46 teaches us, be still and know that I am God. That can be a striving for patience, a striving for stillness that's necessary in suffering. Because sometimes, maybe some of you experience this in a home group. Someone brings up something about suffering. This is what I'm dealing with. And because we have good intentions, is because we have the Bible, and because we have the first three things, we're standing firm, we're in one spirit, we're of one mind, the first thing we want to do is we want to rush to gospel them. This is what I'm dealing with. Well, brother, here's what you need to believe then. And it's true, right? And it's loving because it's coming from a loving heart. You want them to believe the truth. And so then another person chimes in, and maybe you're not believing this. And maybe, and it just all these things are coming. The gospel's getting shot across the room. And we think, I think maybe immaturely, we think this is the most helpful thing in the moment. And I'm not sure that's true because, again, to use the analogy of Job's friends, I think that's what they were trying to do. Sometimes the most helpful thing for us to do in the midst of suffering for another is to sit quietly beside them. Remind them of simpler, simpler truths like you're loved by God, you're loved by me. I'm sorry this is happening to you. This isn't fair. We live in an unjust world and this is not justice. And then as we sit quietly and sometimes we don't say a ton, then the time is right for us to be, to be reminders of and God's still going to turn this for good. I'm not saying you never get to the gospel. we got to get there. If we don't ever get there, we just pander to each other, right? That's not good. But if we rush there too quickly, too hastily, our striving becomes our own strength. Our striving becomes, it's all about what I know. And the truth is, how many of you have ever been in a situation where you know all the right things, and when people are saying them to you, all it does is make you more angry? Ever been there? That's tough. When someone's gospeling you, and you just want to punch them right in the jaw, you're like, you know what? I know Romans 8.28. It's in my kid's bedroom. We stenciled it. All right? I got coffee mugs with that on it. But it doesn't feel that way right now. And what you really need is for somebody to be the presence of a loving God with you and, and hug you and say, I'm sorry. God loves you. And sometimes that can be striving together. Next is side by side. I think side by side is a way for Paul to talk about community. We should, we should suffer in community with brothers and sisters. Guarding each other. This side by side, it gives this uh, analogy of uh, like military, right? You guys remember the Spartans? They used to, they used to fight. And, and the way that the Spartans would fight is they'd fight side by side, and the, the, the warrior here would use his shield to defend his warrior at his side. But he had to be trusting that his fellow warrior on this side would then shield him. And that's how they would push forward in battle, side by side. And they guarded each other in this way. And you might be thinking, Court, if I'm already suffering, what are they guarding me from? Listen, friends, there's suffering that happens to you as God in his sovereign will has allowed and then the enemy looks to come on the back end of that suffering after he's tried to buffet you, and then he tries to accuse the heart. And then he tries to begin working on your, your heart and mind to rationalize against God why this is happening. There's two assaults that are happening. Whatever has happened to you, and then how you rationalize that. 
See, what, what Paul's saying here is, hey, what happens to us is going to happen to us. How we then rationalize that by the Spirit of God can either lead us to more joy in Christ or we can abandon him. And so what we guard each other from is not from suffering because sometimes suffering comes from the hand of God. Read the book of Job. But when it comes, we guard ourselves from lies. We guard each other from lies. We guard each other from deceit. We guard each other from shame. We guard each other from guilt. We guard each other from condemnation. And we guard each other from running to the wrong wells for water when we're thirsty. So Paul says, fight side by side. And I don't only think he's talking about guarding here, but I think he's also talking about equity and humility. That there shouldn't be a pecking order in this community that ultimately what, what, what can happen in times of suffering is that perhaps depending upon maybe where you are more inclined, more gifted, uh, let's say you're theologically gifted, and in the midst of suffering, you are a, a reader, you know the Bible, and so what tends to happen is that the person who's theologically gifted, one of two things, either we run to them in hopes that they're going to fix the problem with the verses they've memorized, or we don't approach them in love when we recognize that they're actually not handling suffering very well because we're afraid that they're going to theologize us and push us back down. Does that make sense? In that pecking order. They know the Bible, so when you approach them and say, Brother, I've noticed this in you, that maybe you're not really handling the suffering too well. And in the pecking order, you say, you don't know what you're talking about. Here's six scriptures why you're wrong. See, don't kid yourself. You can defend with the Bible from very good, loving people. Right? It's happened many times. Like Satan used the word of God in order to tempt Jesus to defame God, the Father. It's scary, isn't it? But it happens. And Paul says we should fight side by side to remind each other in times of suffering that in the end, no matter your role in the church, we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we need Jesus. And therefore, that we can have equity in understanding and we can have equity in our conversations where you can speak the truth in love to me and I can respond to it no matter if I'm pastor court or if I'm volunteer court. Does this make sense? Paul's aiming for that. And he's not aiming for this in a way that diminishes leadership in the church. He's aiming for this in a way that brings unity to the body of Christ. Then he says, you, fight, you strive side by side for what? For faith in the gospel. I think this is big. We don't fight for our own vendettas. We fight for the faith in the gospel. And it's so easy, and the enemy's so crafty, that he'll ensure that you'll fight for almost anything else. You'll fight for your own theological pet peeve. You'll fight for your own uh, relationships, you'll fight for your own little, little part of your own little kingdom, whatever it may be. It's weird stuff that churches have fought over in, his, in church history, right? It's crazy. It's crazy. The carpet color, the wall color, <laughs> you know, what, the order of service. And it's like, it's okay to have, you know, what we, we robust dialogue over that. <laughs> But to fight for that, like to, to legitimately take up arms and say, the announcements need to be at the end, not the beginning, you know, and I'll break fellowship over it. It's craziness. It's craziness because what it does is it takes energy away from fighting for what matters most, which is the faith of the gospel. And then finally, Paul says this, and it's akin to what he said earlier in the chapter. He says, and we should not be frightened in any way by our opponents. Now, that means two things, I think, and one is very explicit, and I don't want to take it away from what this text is talking about. 
He means, number one, to the Philippians, there are people who hate you for your faith and they will oppose you at every turn. Don't be scared, but be courageous. That's what he's talking about here, and he's talking about that from his own personal experience as he's imprisoned. And in Philippi, there were people who hated the church. In Paul's experience in Philippi, he was imprisoned for it because when they preached the gospel, people would lay down their idols and it was bad for business. (laughs) That's why they hated the preaching of the gospel. The story of the beginning of the church at Philippi was a girl who was a fortune teller and made a buku of money fortune telling. And she's following Paul and Silas around Philippi saying, these men are servants of the most high God. And she's saying the truth, but she's saying it from a a demonic spirit. And Paul gets irritated with her finally, turns around, says, come out of her, get out. And the spirit leaves her and she can no longer tell the future. And her owners, she's a slave, her owners are infuriated. They can't make money anymore. So what do they do? They raise up a riot. This man is is trying to bring disunity to our town. This man is evil. His name is Paul. And they throw them both in prison. Paul, knowing this and knowing the climate in Philippi, says, listen, when people oppose you and when you're in the face of suffering, don't be a coward, but be courageous. Because even if the worst is to happen, and listen, don't we all fear the worst? Fear the unknown? Paul says, even if the unknown or the worst were to happen, Christ will, he will be with you. Be courageous. And he says this, I love Paul, he says this as he's in prison so you can trust him, can't you? Okay, that's one opponent. Now for us, where we sit currently right now, that's probably not our everyday experience, am I right? And listen, I think that we should praise God for that. What a blessing. Like I don't think we should walk around like masochists and be like, I wish someone would, you know, know, hate me for the gospel. Um, That's not probably the wisest thing because you've probably never experienced that. It's terrible. Okay, but I do believe there's opponents to the gospel every single day, particularly spiritual and even inward opponents. So a few would be Satan, sin, self. Those are three opponents to the gospel message that you can cow down to and you could not stand courageously against. Satan hates the gospel message and he will do anything in order to oppose you. You can be afraid of suffering that he tries to bring to your doorstep and you can shy away from anything that might actually make you a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Sin, the sin that's within you, hates the growth that is happening by the power of the Spirit. And therefore, your sin will wage war against what's happening internally. You ever felt that? Paul said it like this, the things that I want to do, I don't do right? And the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. Who will save me from this body of death? He's like, there's a war in my members. There's a war inside of me. I don't know what's happening, but every time I want to do something right, I do something wrong. And every time I don't want to do something wrong, I end up doing it. That's called sin waging war against the work of God, the work of the gospel in your heart. And then lastly, yourself. You're you're never going to find an enemy that's as strong as yourself. Look in the mirror. That's the person who's going to fight you to the bitter end. Because there's two selves in you now. When you were born again, there's not two selves. There's the new you, born again in Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, and there's the old you. And the old you is chained to sin, enslaved to sin. And therefore, this war, this battle is going to happen, and it's going to wage every single day against the faith of the gospel that's looking to take root in your heart and start bearing more fruit. So you're going to notice on the same tree, if you're a tree, on the same tree, you're going to have good fruit and bad fruit. You're like, what is happening? And the temptation is to be a coward and just say, let's let it all grow and God will figure it out in the end. And Paul says, no, stand courageous. 
And particularly when you suffer, stand courageous against the temptation to let those three opponents take hold and take root. And I, I don't have time, but I could go into what do those opponents say? Maybe this is a good exercise later in home group. What do these opponents say to you to help to try to make you believe when you suffer? What would Satan say? What would your sin say? And what do you say in, your, in the pattern of your old life? Paul says, stand firm and be courageous against that. See, having joy in Christ through suffering comes as we learn to trust Christ with our suffering by leaning on him for strength to obey him in the midst of it. Because you could look at this and you could say, listen, this is all just stuff that we're supposed to do as Christians anyway, isn't it? Why is Paul uniquely calling us to do that for suffering? Well, Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable of two houses. Some of you remember this story in the Sermon on the Mount. He says one is built on the sand and one is built on the rock. And it says these houses look identical. They look exactly the same because you can't see the foundations, right? They just look like two beautiful houses. But then what's the end of the parable? What happens? The storms come. And Jesus doesn't say if the storms come. What does he say? When the storms come. See, the storms are the only thing that can test the validity of where these houses have been built. Only suffering does that to your faith. Suffering tests where your faith presides truly because good times can't do that for you. And it doesn't mean that you should go out being a suffering hunter. Trust me, it'll come. Just wait on it. Give it time. It's, it's always on time. But nonetheless, suffering offers to the Christian what good times can't. Suffering gives a clear indication of our salvation. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 28, I'm sorry, in verse 29, so nope, verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction and of your salvation and that from God. So he says, listen, these opponents that hated the church at Philippi, he says, that is because their unregenerate hearts have led them that way. And it tells you that they're on a path. And apart from the grace of God, that's the path you were on. See, he doesn't say it'll remind you of your salvation and then leave it at that because then you'd get prideful. You're like, that's right, I'm better than them. He says, no, this reminds you of your salvation and that salvation's from God, not you. So suffering, what it does is it tests us. It tries us. And then as the, the God of grace gives us strength to persevere and trust Jesus through suffering, it encourages you. It lets you know this whole thing isn't a sham. Tell me you don't need that. I know you need that. I know we need that. You need to know that this love that God has given to us that supposedly is stronger than even the principalities and powers, things present, things to come, the love of God that's supposed to be power, more powerful than death itself, you need to know that it can withstand the worst suffering of your life. And when it does, it brings joy. It becomes a servant. Suffering can become the servant of the Christian because it tests their faith. And then it gives them joy in Jesus who sustained them through the storm. See, suffering makes us weak. And then we're able to see Jesus' goodness because he'll carry us in our weakness. When we're obedient and strong in the face of suffering, the Christian knows better than to beat their chest about that and say, see how strong I am? You see, the Christian knows when you can be obedient and strong in the midst of the worst times of your life, you rejoice and say, Christ has made manifest strength in the midst of my weakness. He's so good to me. And then you know him more. Okay, and then Paul ends with this just doozy, right? 
This is the one. This is the, this is the line right here that just changes everything about the way you view suffering. He says this, For it has been granted to you, gifted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says suffering is not just the result of evil, although it is. But now, for the Christian, because of Christ's atoning work on the cross, suffering can be a gift from God that comes alongside our faith and fans our joy into flame. That's different, isn't it? That's different. Spurgeon said it like this. This is spiritual maturity. Listen into what Charles Spurgeon says. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Think about, yeah, that's what I think. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I embrace the hardship. He goes on to say in that sermon that when suffering comes to him, it's like a prophet in rough clothing telling him that there's a greater blessing coming on the other side. That's what he says. And that greater blessing is not some charismatic TBN sevenfold, you know, into your bank account if you'll just buy this prayer cloth. It's knowing Jesus. That's the greater blessing. I know him more. Paul said it like this. He's going to say it later in Philippians. To know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering. Those, those things are, that's not two different gods. That's the same God that we know. And in fact, we can't experience the power of resurrection until we know the fellowship of suffering. We don't experience the empty tomb unless we experience the cross. You see, we might try to dodge or avoid or scheme to get out of suffering. But there's nothing like suffering that moves the Christian nearer to the heart of God. There's just nothing that does. It's why God says in the Psalms, a broken and contrite spirit I do not despise. Again, I just want to say, I'm not, I'm not trying to create masochists in the room. <laughs> um, I'm not encouraging you to have an unhealthy penchant for dark and evil times, all right? If you, if you start wearing black, all right, I'm going, to come, I'm going to come to you and just say, listen, it's not always a funeral. Um, but instead, I'm, I'm offering this morning gospel lenses that Paul offers so that each and every time the, the dark night of the soul does come, the way in which you view suffering changes. I'm going to read Isaiah 53 and... Um, I think Isaiah 53 helps us because what do I mean by the fellowship of suffering in Jesus? Well, Isaiah prophesied about Christ, and this is, this is a famous text. This is not like, you know, Court just pulled this one out and he's so theological. This is a f- famous text called The Suffering Servant. Some of you have heard it. There's songs about this. It's Isaiah's, he's seeing in the future and he's seeing Christ. He's seeing the Savior. He's seeing the Messiah. He's seeing the King. Here's what he says. I'm just going to read the chapter. I'll read it quickly. Who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Okay, every time he says he now, think of Christ. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned 
every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his land, and out of anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. The reason that suffering is used by God that we might know Christ is because at the core of our faith is the suffering Savior. At the very bedrock of our faith is Jesus on a cross for us. And in order for us to worship and truly know that sacrifice... Suffering helps us because it gives us a glimpse of what we did deserve. Let me tell you something. The worst suffering you've ever experienced doesn't hold a candle to what he did. And so when we suffer, we can say, thanks be to God that what I'm experiencing is just a glancing blow. (laughs) It gives you an inclination. Our sicknesses. You ever been sick and you hurt? It gives you an inclination of what Christ experienced on the cross for you and for me, what we deserved when he drank the cup of wrath dry. And then we say, thank you, Jesus. See, we know him now. We begin to know him, that he was willing to do that for you and for me. We begin to experience the love of God in that suffering. Suffering reminds us the world's broken and that we need a Savior. Suffering reminds us that there's no worldly substitute that can give us the joy that Christ offers. Suffering reminds us that the cross was necessary, not just nice. Right? It wasn't just a nice gesture. It was necessary for you and me. Suffering fuels worship that Jesus is going to make this thing right. And he's going to turn it for our good. And then maybe most importantly is that suffering reminds us just how much we don't know. (laughs) And so it makes us slow to speak and more humble people. I want to end with a story of a guy named John Newton. Many of you know his story. There's There's a movie about William Wilberforce called Amazing Grace that talks about the slave trade and the abolition of the slave trade. John Newton was a man who was captured uh, and he was enslaved uh, on a boat in his early life. He was abused, he was beaten, uh, he was sold over to slave owners whenever they made it to land, and he spent a lot of his life as a slave. Uh, And then he was rescued, and he he was on his way back to his, his homeland and his family, Uh, A storm arose and it began to to topple, almost topple the boat. And that's when he was converted to Christ. He cried out to God and said, please save me. And some of the cargo shifted over to the hole in the boat and it stopped the hole. And so he was sure that God was real because he was about to die. Um, And so many people think that had to have been the moment, you know, since he was a slave that he suffered. That's probably whenever he started to to fight the slave trade, right? Christ saved him and, and then 
No, it took 30 years for John Newton to finally come to realize that he should actually fight against slaves. In fact, after being a slave, he gets into the business of trading slaves again. And it wasn't until he had a stroke and until he started to do ministry with the downtrodden and the depressed and the slaves that God opened his eyes to just how grotesque it was. And John Newton saw suffering as the greatest teacher in his life. He wrote a, he wrote a song, and I'm going to read the lyrics to you in closing. Um, and then I'll, I'll have you stand to our feet and we'll, we'll take communion together. His song goes like this. Also, John Newton wrote the famous song, Amazing Grace. Are we all on the same page there? Okay, want to make sure. It says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my requests. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. He crossed all the fair designs I schemed. He blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thine all in me. If you'll stand to your feet, let me pray for us. And when I say amen, I want to invite you to the table of the Lord. If you don't know Christ this morning, take this moment to consider Jesus. He's worthy of your faith. Father, would you help us to view suffering in this way? I confess to you now openly that it is my inclination to avoid suffering at all costs. Lord, I, I want to also confess to you, I'm not even sure if that's right or wrong in some ways. But I also know that suffering inevitably will come to the children that are yours. And so I just ask, would you prepare our hearts for that? I want to pray for the suffering in this room right now, Lord, that are hurting. I ask that this, this word from your scripture would be a, a warm blanket to their soul. My God, would you wrap your arms around them this morning and, say, and, and, and whisper to them kindly that they might know you in the midst of this suffering. And for those of us who aren't experiencing that depth of suffering right now, may we be an encouragement to them, not to gospel them immediately, but to love them with your hands, to love them with your heart. And finally, as we take communion this morning together as your family, as we take the bread and as we take the wine, help us to be reminded of just the lengths you're willing to go, Jesus, to save a wretch like me. Thank you that you're the suffering servant and that you took upon yourself what I could never have bore so that I could spend eternity with you. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.